This podcast is brought to you by Blackbee Ministries International. To find out more, visit blackbee.org. Welcome, everyone, to the Richard Blackaby Leadership Podcast. My name is Sam, and I'm your host. And here to help take our leadership to the next level is Dr. Richard Blackaby. Good to be with you once again, Sam. Always a pleasure, Richard. Can't be with you enough. That's true. <laughs> you can never get enough of your favorite son-in-law. That's right. and that's, There's that's, so much work still to be done. <laughs> that's what I'm here for. Um, well, before we, we jump into today's episode, um, why don't you just remind folks, you're going to be at the Billy Graham Training Center uh, the Cove, uh, in, just outside of Asheville, North Carolina, uh, coming up here later in the spring, early summer, um, and that's uh, May uh, 8th through the 10th, I believe, are the dates yeah. for that. Um, yeah. What can people expect? And I know that the the um, accommodations there on campus are, are all sold out, so yeah. you can't stay on campus, but you can stay nearby. Right. It's a good, that's a good sign. People have signed up for it and, and been filled up uh, months in advance, but uh, they only have so much accommodation right on site, uh, in, and so you can get waitlisted there. I know there's always people that cancel near the end, so uh, if you've got the flexibility to you know put your name on a waitlist and then see what happens, I encourage you to do that. Um, it's, it's definitely the, you know, the best way to do it is just to stay right on campus. But, uh, but there are, uh, I know a lot of times they'll encourage people as well. There's like a holiday inn that's just pretty well across the street from the Cove and, uh, Hampton Inn not far away and a, mm-hmm. a, c- a couple other places like that. And so another option is to just get a hotel room. And then you can still get a meal ticket uh, to eat your meals at the Cove, which is really nice. And yeah. uh, and uh, or you can even you know eat offsite and save uh, probably some money, and uh, and just come over and just just pay. It's a very nominal fee. There's hardly anything you have to pay if you're just going to attend. Right. Uh, and so you know you pr- probably can do it cheaper if you just stayed offsite uh, and then just you know ate where you, you chose to or uh, picked up some groceries or some stores nearby. Um, but, uh, you know, still encourage you to do that. And, and I, again, just like we said before, if you, I'm, I'm going to be talking about how to become a friend of God and just, just some of the deep dynamics that take place as God tries to develop a relationship with you. And so if you are interested in that and you go to the effort, especially to stay off site and everything else, then uh, you know I, I definitely want to know that you did that, and I'll at least if you're I'll, I'll I'll have I'll find time to spend with you. If you're if you get the meal ticket, then uh, you just come have a meal with me. Um, if uh, if you if you don't even do that, then we'll just go get ice cream afterward and sit out on the deck and visit. But uh, I definitely want to try to make it worth your while if you mm-hmm. do that. So still like to you know fill up the auditorium as best we can with folks um and so just let me know if you go to that extra effort and i definitely want to uh, spend some time with you and and visit with you so i'll i'll be sure to do that i i know that there's some folks on the wait list for accommodations already i know a lot of times those th- there will be usually several cancellations so you know that that does you know if you're on a wait list it does open up a lot of times but if not, uh, I know I think the Holiday Inn is probably the closest, uh, just at the same exit across the highway. Yeah. Um, so there's lots of ways to do that. And um, it, But if you go to a lot of effort, let me know. Send me a message, uh, to, and uh, I'll be glad to work something out. 
Great, great. Well, yeah. uh, this episode, we are, um, you know, we, we've done sort of uh, leader biographies before, and, and we also do on uh, just leadership uh, book reviews or, or book reviews that we think leaders uh, should read. This is sort of uh, kind of in between, I would say, yeah. uh, that. And so why don't you tell us what we're looking at today? Well, uh, I thought we'd look today at a book by Colin Hansen on Tim, Timothy Keller. Tim Keller, and uh, this book is called Timothy Keller, His Spiritual and Intellectual Formation. This book just came out uh, in, I think, in January of 2023. Um, and just a full disclosure, uh, the uh, the publisher uh, asked me if I, I wanted a, a, a review copy to, to look at, and, uh, and I did. Uh, I was happy to... to take that from them. So I'm not paid to make any kind of uh, review of them, but, uh, I did get a free book from the publisher, but it, I, I, That's I, always nice. I have lots of people that want to send me a free book to read, but I just, I just don't really necessarily have the interest or the time. Uh, but, but for this, uh, I was quite interested, uh, in, in Keller and what he has done. And so, uh, I, I was, I put this near the top of my list to read once it, uh, I received it. So, uh, what, but what he does is it's not really a traditional kind of biography that just goes kind of year by year, stage by stage in his life. He does sort of follow the trajectory of his life, but, but what he's really trying to do is figure out how did he come to uh, think and act? You know, how did he figure out how to, to lead and how did, he, how did he develop his theology? Because he, he comes from a very interesting background. Uh, he's not kind of like me. Like I grew up under a dad that had a lot of really solid theology. And so a lot of it, I just embraced and learned from him. And, um, and so some of it was just pretty well prepackaged and yeah. ready to go. Like I, I still had to make it my own, but it was good stuff. And I just, all I had to do was embrace it. Whereas Timothy Keller, it's not that way. Uh, and so he says, uh, it's interesting, his wife, Kathy, uh, Hansen quotes her early on and says, when he walks out the door, the first 10,000 people he sees will have no idea who he is. Uh, of course, he's walking around in New York City, and so the, maybe that's some of that. But, uh, he, but she was trying to say he's just very ordinary. Now, he's, he's about six foot four inches tall, uh, but he's just not a naturally charismatic, uh, kind of attention grabbing kind of person. He's really more of a bookworm. Uh, I think, uh, you know, in fact, the, the book says that he is, uh, or at least he was, uh, somewhat socially awkward. And so of course, whenever you see someone who's done a, um, a significant work, you always, whenever you see that, you think, okay, like why did his, how, why did his church grow so much? Or why did his company uh, prosper so much, and because there were lots of other people that were trying to do the same thing, and so we often tend to assume, well, he must have been a larger than life person, or she must have just had unusual skills uh, or intelligence. And and uh, Timothy Keller, of course, is best known for uh, starting, planting a Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan. Uh, when they built their building, which is a very, very expensive, uh, like, I think like $50 million building, um, it was, I think it was the first church building constructed in Manhattan in over 50, or 100 years, I think. It, wow. Uh, they're just, you know, it was just, of course, purchasing land there is so expensive. And uh, 
and then just such a hard mission field. How do you start a new church in, in Manhattan? And so uh, there just wasn't, uh, no, people for a century had had struggles doing that. And so for him to do that and then grow a church uh, with a very nice facility that averages over 4,000 people in attendance each week um, and and not just kind of reaching, you know, outsiders like people who've moved to New York, but but the people that live there, the, the natives, um, the people on Wall Street, the people working Broadway. Um, it just a it's quite a phenomena that he was able to do that yeah. and uh, and to become such a respected leader. And of course, if you know much about Timothy Keller, he also helped uh, sponsor a couple of ecumenical movements, uh, especially one that is plant has planted hundreds of churches and uh, not even just churches that are all Presbyterian like his, but uh, if they're evangelical, if they're preaching the gospel, uh, he has. Uh, done a, a lot uh, to try to uh, propagate just the gospel and, and, and the spread of churches all over the city. And so he, he's uh, he's become a spiritual statesman. Uh, of course, about two, three years ago, he retired uh, as pastor. And the church, uh, as a result, uh, they, they did something interesting. Instead of trying to just keep his kind of mega church and just finding another pastor to lead that, they actually... Uh, sort of sent out a number of satellite churches to just be their own church and uh, and kind of gave them away and just said, you mm-hmm. guys go out there and and just be the church where you are, and we won't try to control that. We won't try to find someone who's just another Timothy Keller, uh, but we'll... Um, but we'll we'll just kind of multiply what's happening here. So mm, that's really interesting. Yeah, and so it kind of that's the background of him. That's why he's so fascinating. He went into a very very difficult place. Uh, I think uh, maybe one percent or so of uh, people in New York City uh, were going to an evangelical church of any kind when he got there. Uh, there was crime was um, very bad uh, around the time he arrived there. It was just not a good time necessarily to to be in in New York. And uh, and the interesting thing with Keller is he had been a professor at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia before that. Uh, he loved doing that. He's kind of a brainiac uh, academician to begin with, and he loved students and he loved uh, the learning that came from other professors. And so. Uh, why he would walk away from that to go into trying to plant a church in in New York City yeah. uh, was definitely a God thing. And so because of that, I just I find it interesting what would lead a guy to do that and how did he become so successful? And so just a couple of things, uh, maybe just to highlight that comes out of this biography or this this book. Um, it, it says, for one thing, it's interesting that apparently he had a very docile, uh, kind of somewhat henpecked father uh, and a very domineering mother. Uh, and this mother, apparently, he, uh, his, uh, the uh, Hanson, the biographer, says she had a huge need to control. She was very controlling, uh, very opinionated. Uh, he says she didn't shy away from telling her children how often they disappointed her. And uh, Keller had a very distant relationship with her. I think he was quite happy to uh, leave home at the earliest possible opportunity. Doesn't look like he uh, answered much of her correspondence. I think he was just happy to get away from her controlling influence. And uh, and she was someone that was unhappy with 
the church that she knew, I, and it, it seems kind of interesting that uh, that she actually had uh, Keller baptized as a Catholic, but then she left the Catholic Church and moved to the Lutheran Church, had him confirmed as a Lutheran. When he enrolled in seminary, he was a Wesleyan Arminian, and by the time he was ordained, he was a Presbyterian. And so here's a guy who has moved from Catholicism uh, to Presbyterianism, uh, and he's had to find his own way. His mother kind of was taking him from here to there, uh, very controlling. And so he had a lot of confusions and, and the, the religion he grew up in was pretty legalistic and joyless. And so, uh, he wasn't necessarily attracted, uh, to the religion of his childhood. He knew that there had to be something else. And so what I like about Keller is that, and, and what I like about this book is he, I think he does a good job of showing the various influences on Keller. And uh, and Keller, in one sense, I guess in every age, there are some really influential Christian leaders, but uh, he has the, the opportunity to get around some very influential uh, Christian influencers that in a, in a great formative time of his life that leave an impact. But, you know, of course, there's many people that are students with him in school and uh, have a lot of the same opportunities, but he's a person who's reading voraciously, who's uh, studying, preparing himself. And and so it says, though, coming out of his childhood, that he grew up socially awkward, a wallflower who didn't know how to make or sustain friendships. And again, you think, here's a guy who's going to grow a megachurch, uh, but, as a, but as a young man, he was socially awkward, didn't really know how to have friends, uh, maintain friendships. It says he was prone to constant internal self-criticism. He says, uh, his author says, a a cycle of shame had left him starred for community where he could be included, accepted, even admired. Uh, And so uh, he, so uh, Keller, what really helps him is going off to college and beginning to think for himself, starting to analyze things and learn and try to figure out what's true and what's not true. And one of the first things he, of course, he does, he goes in the 60s uh, into to university. And so there's all kinds of segregation and there's the civil rights movement is uh, developing. And, and it says Keller struggled to believe that an entire society, especially one so pervasively Christian, could rationalize the evil of racial segregation. And so he, he's looking at uh, people claiming to be Christian and yet doing things that he just senses innately are not Christ-like. And, uh, yeah. and he's trying to figure out, not, you know, does this, he, he wasn't ready just to give up on, on God, even though he wasn't a Christian yet, but he's searching, trying to find him. And ultimately in April, 1970, he, he finds Christ, gives his life to Christ. And he's, and he's quite in, in, impacted early on by the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, uh, which was an ecumenical, interdenominational ministry to college um, students. And that's going to have a very formative influence on his life. It's going to make him ecumenical. He's going to be Presbyterian, but he's never going to shy away from working with other denominations and other churches. And I think a lot of that you know, oftentimes we're impacted quite deeply by how we get saved. And uh, he's saved and initially discipled by a movement that um, that goes on to university campuses, tries to answer 
the questions students are asking, uh, and he works with all denominations. And so he, uh, he early on gets impacted by a number of people. Uh, he has a pastor, Dick Merritt, that he later claims is maybe one of the best preachers he ever heard. Uh, and so he's, he's very fortunate. He, he tends to get to churches that have good pastors uh, that provide good role models for him. Uh, Barbara Boyd with uh, IBCF uh, was a very strong leader at that time, uh, very strong in Bible study, and did whole weekend conferences on the making Christ the Lord of your life and so on. And so some of these kind of people early on really impact him. He goes to Urbana, which is a, I think it's a triennial meeting of IVCF. Um, and in 1976, he goes, and the speakers were Billy Graham, Elizabeth Elliott, uh, John Stott, Edmund Clowney. And, uh, and these, these people are going to all play an influence uh, in his life. Uh, he says of, of John Stott, he said, more than anyone else, he created e- evangelicalism as a middle space between fundamentalism and liberalism. And that's going to be a huge thing for uh, Keller. Keller uh, is going to try to find a middle road. Uh, he, he doesn't want to be liberal, but he also is not uh, really attracted to the extreme fundamentalism of the far right either. And so Keller is going to try to find a middle, a middle path where he, he's going to hold on to his doctrinal beliefs. He's not going to compromise those. But he is going to be willing to work with people that perhaps he doesn't always totally agree with theologically. And of course, fundamentalists are going to be appalled at that. They're going to condemn him because he's not just working with them and that he would somehow sanction people that they disagree with. And so, you know, anyone who walks the middle ground at times is going to be shot at from both sides. And so, uh, yeah, the, yeah, the benefit of, of the middle road is that you get attacked from, from both, both ends. Yeah. And so, you know, even to this day, I've, I've noticed that he, uh, is critique for a lot of uh, things that he does. Um, and, but, you know, I, I, I've just noticed that when you, when you are being shot at by the extremists on either side, right or left, um, you, you realize, you know, the, the people who get the most done are usually people that find sort of a, n- not, not middle of the road in the sense of being lukewarm, mm-hmm. but just realizing I don't want to, there's a, there's a, you, you can be quite conservative and orthodox and yet also be gracious, be kind, uh, cooperative, uh, find things that you do have in common and work with others. And so that, that's going to really be a lot of, of what really begins to dominate uh, Keller's thinking. Uh, he meets Kathy, his, his future wife, uh, as a student. Uh, and she's kind of interesting as well. Now, she's also called uh, intelligent but socially awkward. That pretty well describes both Kellers. They're very brainy, very smart, but they're just awkward. And it's, it's kind of funny that his, you know, Hansen is given access to Keller. Hansen, as an author, is not uh, in Keller's church. He's not heard him preach a lot, He's, but he was, I'm, I'm not quite sure why he was uh, the one that was invited to, to write this, but he was given access to all of Keller's materials. He interviewed Keller. And so he's getting, I guess, from Keller himself, the, he's acknowledging that he and his wife were socially awkward. His, <laughs> his wife really didn't date in college uh, until she meets him. Um, and, uh, and yet w- something interesting about his wife is that when she was just a young girl, 
she began corresponding with C.S. Lewis. Uh, just she actually felt sorry for Lewis. Didn't know that he was all that popular, and that. And, but she loved his writing, and so she just wanted to write him, encourage him. You know, if no one else likes what you write, I do. And that's amazing. Yeah, and so he actually <laughs> wrote her back, and she has a, n- a number of letters from him, and they had this little correspondence going on. And so, that's so cool. So she was a C.S. Lewis. Um, a fan, and then she gets uh, her husband, her future husband Tim, to uh, also grow to love uh, Lewis, and then Tolkien, and those kind of people as well. And so there's just a there's almost a who's who in one sense of influential Christians that speak into the Keller's life. R.C. Sproul, that of course was a uh, reformed uh, theologian, uh, would spend a lot of time investing in college students, and would have kind of what they called gab fest, where you could just spend evenings just bringing questions up and he would answer them. And, uh, of course he's very, uh, he, he was not intimidated by people's questions and even people that had doubts. Uh, he welcomed that. And, uh, and, and through interaction with people like Sproul, uh, the Kellers are going to become more and more reformed until they eventually find their home among Presbyterians. But even when Keller starts his church, He's, he, you can tell some of the influences of people like Sproul because um, he, in New York City, he's going he's to be conservative theologically, but he's going to welcome uh, questions and, and uh, seekers and even you know, people that might disagree with him. And uh, in starting the church, he said, uh, we are very relentless yet extremely non-combative. So he's like, mm-hmm. we, we know what we believe, but we're not going to fight with you about it. We're not going to get argumentative. He said, as we present the reasonable uh, beauty of the Christian faith in every aspect of our ministry. And so ultimately, the Kellers go to Gordon-Conwell Seminary, and and, uh, his wife is there too. And she actually planned to be a Presbyterian minister herself when she was uh, a young lady. And and preparing for college, and and while they're there, one of the uh, it, there's several things kind of interesting about that time. One is that uh, Keller is going to take a preaching class, and he's going to get a C in preaching, which is kind of interesting now, being one of the influential speakers and teachers and writers. Apparently, his professor said, "You are a big teapot with a little spout. You need to learn how to let it out." He said. Um, <laughs> Which is, I hopefully, comforting to some folks that perhaps didn't start off all that promising, but uh, that doesn't mean that's the end of the story. And uh, and uh, Elizabeth Elliot, of course, uh, the the widow of Jim Elliot that was uh, martyred, uh, she ends up teaching there at uh, Gordon Conwell, and she is very very big on women's roles and that there. There is uh, a, a, a sub, not a subordinate role, but a different role for women, and they're not. And she doesn't believe that women should necessarily be ordained ministers in the church. And so, ultimately, the Kellers are going to adopt that view, largely, I think, because of uh, Elizabeth Elliot, and that's going to be very, a very conservative view uh, to have. But but Kathy uh, uh, Keller is going to eventually stop pursuing trying to be. A minister herself, and she's going to support her husband. And of course, she's going to be, have a great influence in the church as a as a leader and as a woman. But but she's no longer going to be pursuing ordination, and that's going to that's going to cost them in some ways later on, because it's just seen as pretty backward in a very progressive age in a progressive city. But you can kind of notice uh, uh, just some of the different influences on them. 
uh, and there, these are, this is a couple that just keeps learning and growing and, and, uh, being impacted by some very strong, uh, teachers, uh, influencers, uh, another man, Richard Loveless, uh, wrote a book, the dynamics of spiritual life, uh, that introduces Keller to the whole idea of, uh, revival, uh, spiritual life, uh, the church, uh, and, and while Keller's in school, he's going to become fascinated with people like John, Jonathan Edwards. In fact, jo- he'll quote Jonathan Edwards a lot in his sermons. And, uh, and, and in fact, uh, Keller embraces a lot of different Puritan writers like John Owen and uh, mm-hmm. Richard Baxter. And uh, he, he loves these, these kind of reformed Puritan uh, authors. And you think, uh, here he is preparing to plant a church in New York City and he's writing reading Puritans like Jonathan Edwards like that just doesn't seem like the natural kind of fit uh, you think he'd be reading all kinds of you know cutting edge theologians and creative uh, modern kind of thinkers uh, he's, well, the, he, the Puritans they they just had a way of sort of just distilling down you know they could write a whole book on yeah one like, verse yeah yeah they which they, is interesting I think that's a you know, I think that brings some clarity, and, and and it's not surprising, I guess, in some ways that that Timothy is sort of drawn to that. Yeah, you, it's but again, it's just sort of an unusual thing. Yeah, it, yeah, it, it, it made is. me it made me want to read more Puritans. Uh, he 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 read Calvin's Institutes, uh, which uh, you know, which is again some heavy reading. But he, he called them, he said, the greatest, deepest, and most extensive treatment of the grace of God I've ever read. And mm-hmm. so you don't necessarily think of it that way, but, yeah. uh, but he did. So, but but uh, Hansen noticed, uh, comments that although the Kellers were growing and learning, they really didn't stand out. And uh, even though uh, Keller is a very avid student and he's thinking and processing, uh, he applied several times. He wanted to study under some of these professors. He wanted to be taken in as like a grader or an assistant or something. And he, and he always got passed over. Uh, it's kind of in some ways sad, but in maybe in other ways encouraging. Here's a guy who's going to become a, one of the most respected pastors in America, but no, no professor necessarily sees anything unusually gifted about him while he's in seminary. And so when he graduates, he doesn't have lots of churches all lining up to ask him to be their pastor and the professors aren't all just you know giving writing ringing endorsements of his future uh, ministry possibilities and so they don't have a lot of of options and so in 1975 they eventually go to the Presbyterian church in Hopewell Virginia which is very much a working town in fact it says i think uh none of the elders had ever even graduated from college. I think there were like two college graduates in the entire church. Uh, and it's not that big of a church, but, uh, and so he gets there and he's, he's got all, you know, he's quoting Jonathan Edwards and Calvin's institutes and CS Lewis and, and very quickly just realizes I'm going to have to modify what I do. Uh, I've got to figure out how to preach in a way that these people get it. I think early on he was trying to teach kind of the way he would have taught, uh, a Bible study in in his university days mm-hmm. or his seminary days, and apparently some people just got up and walked out, never came back. They just thought, "Hey, we don't this guy. He's just some brainiac, yeah. intellectual that doesn't get people. Just loves all these Puritan writers and and doesn't know what's going on." And but he, to his credit, um, he 
he figures out, okay, I've got to figure out the context here of ministry and figure out how to reach these people. And so he does. He, he shifts his preaching. Now, he's doing a lot of reading, but he figures out how to make these people accessible and their thoughts accessible to working people. And, and I think uh, very much so that I don't know that he ever could have come into New York City and, and developed a ministry there if he'd not had a trial run first. Uh, yeah. And so he spends a number of years uh, at this working class, un, uneducated uh, church, learning how to connect with them. And he preaches, I think over nine years, he preached like 1,500 sermons. Um, that's a lot of sermons to be preaching over a short period of time. And, and so he, he hones his craft. He learns how to uh, answer questions that people are asking. He, he, of course, he's influenced by Richard Baxter's book, The Reformed Pastor, which I have. And it's just a, it's a great book on just being a, a faithful pastor to your flock and just going, you know, knowing what the state of every church member's uh, walk with God is like. And so he just does that. And of course, the church grows. It never becomes a megachurch. But it definitely grows and uh, uh, and and uh, prospers under his watch. And and they said after he left that when they were kind of having a farewell and a remembrance of his ministry, that uh, nobody really quoted a lot of his sermons he preached, even though he preached a bunch of them. But uh, it was more his personal ministry, his personal words of encouragement in the hospital or other places and the funerals and. Uh, and he, he learned how to, to minister. And, and so, you know, I, I, I think in my own experience, I pastored in a, in a church that had gone through a lot of difficult times and had been in decline and really needed to be re- revitalized. And, uh, and I poured myself in. That's where I learned how to do weddings and funerals, how to preach, how to minister, how to baptize. And then, um, you know, I, I, as far as I knew, that's where I was going to spend my whole life. And then, uh, and then I, I discover, no, that was I was learning a lot of my tools for where God would take me next, and uh, and so I, I, he's a great uh, example of um, this uh, being faithful in a little, and then letting God take that and give you more. And so he's going to go. Eventually, he's invited to go to Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia and to be a professor. And of course, that seems like the perfect kind of job for him. Uh, he he does that well. He invests in students. Students love him, and uh, he he mentors a, a large number of them. And it and he also is around a bunch of very influential people um, that like Harvey Kahn, that is very big into urban evangelism and ministry in the city and and caring for the needs of the city and and. Uh, Keller from him learns a lot about ministry in the city. It's just interesting. You look back later and you realize all along his pathway, uh, God is putting people into his life that will give him things that he needs uh, for what God knows he'll be doing next. You know, you you don't necessarily know that at the time. Like here he is, Keller is a a professor in Philadelphia, um, and but he's fascinated by this guy who keeps talking about how to reach the city, and he's like, "Well, I'm a professor. I don't need to know that." Uh, but after about five years of that, uh, he's going to begin to he's going to be approached uh, because there's a group that wants to start a church in New York, and Keller is trying to get anyone else to go there but him. And he's got three sons, and he his he and his wife really don't like the idea of trying to raise their boys uh, in New York City. 
uh, they they were kind of tired by the time they left their first church. They had just poured themselves into it, and they really need this time to just kind of rest and recoup um, in uh, uh, at the seminary. And thinking about going in and being a church planter in New York City just seems like the most unattractive thing imaginable. <laughs> but uh, but ultimately, they realize that that's what God is calling them to do. And again, it's interesting. It's uh, a, a, another Puritan writer, William Gurnall wrote a book, The Christian in Complete Armor. And I've got that book. I've started into it. I've just got, I kind of got sidetracked. It's actually what I prop up. My, it's so thick, I prop my laptop on it so it's high <laughs> enough to, and I've got, it's right. I look at it every day when I'm sitting in front of my laptop, but I need to get back there and finish that one now. Uh, but he, uh, but he, in that book, it says, it requires more powers and greatness of spirit to obey God faithfully than to command an army of men. And he realizes uh, it's not an easy thing to obey God, but uh, it's the right thing to do. And so he ultimately surrenders his will to that, and his wife, Kathy, agrees to go wherever he's feeling led to go. And so they go, and, they, and they, they're fortunate in that there is a group of, uh, of Christian leaders, a lot of them connected to Campus Crusade, and uh, there is a, something called a DeMoss House, and Nancy DeMoss, uh, widow uh, of, of a DeMoss uh, fortune that um, had developed a ministry to uh, business people in New York City, trying to reach the, the locals and just engaging them in conversations about uh, real life issues. And, and so this group um, embraces Keller. And so he is very fortunate. And then he gets a group of evangelism minded uh, people that have already been trying to reach uh, citizens of New York City when, when Keller gets there. And so when he, he launches his church, it grows quite rapidly at the outset, in large part because he's just, he's connected. Uh, and, and part of that's just his ecumenicism, that he is, he's networked with uh, other Christian groups that uh, are willing to work with him. Uh, and uh, and so together they, they start this church. And people who visited Redeemer Presbyterian, uh, they, they kind of note the fact that uh, it was very traditional. I mean, they didn't have really cutting edge music. They they had uh, they said Keller talked to a lot of people, listened to a lot of people, and and um, he he found that they weren't looking for just you know you, it's it's going it's to be hard to compete with Broadway when you are ministering by Broadway. Yeah. Um, and so just he uh, the services were fairly traditional, music fairly traditional. They didn't have you know, cutting edge rock bands necessarily. Uh, and then, but then he, his preaching, uh, he would quote Puritans, but he'd also quote, you know, uh, common popular authors and, and cultural icons of the day. And he'd kind of weave it all together into a sermon that, uh, addressed the questions that New Yorkers had. And, uh, and, and God, uh, began to really bless that. And, uh, maybe one, just one other thing about that church is that, uh, the church really, uh, I mean, it's growing and it, it's getting traction, but, uh, it really doesn't take off, uh, to the heights it would ultimately reach until nine 11. And I, mm. I've actually talked to some folks who were attending his church during nine 11 and they went to, uh, the first Sunday service after, uh, the terrorist attack and, People were lined up around the block just to make sure they got a seat in the auditorium, the first uh, 
church services after uh, 9-11. And, uh, and uh, Keller just, he didn't advertise this, but people just uh, spontaneously uh, donated money to his church. And uh, over $2 million were, was given to the church just to help with people in, in New York City. So they were they were giving money away and helping people and that had been displaced from their homes. Uh, many people that lived in apartments and things down there couldn't go back to their homes for months afterward. And so uh, a lot of people displaced. Of course, a lot of people searching for answers afterward about where is God in the midst of evil and so on. And so that uh, rose, that lifted Keller to a new level of prominence. And so uh, Hansen just mentions that um, that really Keller doesn't really rise to prominence until later, like into his mid-50s, that he finally reaches the stature that he's kind of known for today. And it comes through, uh, I, I guess what I'm impressed with with Keller is that you know, he has to overcome some things like some social awkwardness, uh, a, a messed up childhood in many ways, uh, a, a confused religious upbringing that he's got to make sense of. Uh, but he keeps studying, keeps growing, keeps learning, keeps thinking. Uh, he, he's always reading books. They said, you know, typically you find him walking down the street reading a book as he goes and uh, just trying to fill his mind. Uh, it, an interesting thing that uh, Hansen says about Keller is that he says he's not really an original thinker. Uh, in fact, he says, uh, rarely will you find an idea in Keller that you can't trace back to someone else. To understand Keller is to read his book's footnotes. Uh, and it says, really, his originality comes from the synthesis. And that doesn't mean that he doesn't have thoughts of his own. But what he does is he pulls from Edwards and Calvin and, all, and Lewis and all kinds of different people. And then he comes up with a synthesis that works for his context in New York City and, uh, and that communicates with people. And that's really his genius. And so not that he's coming up with lots of new ideas, but that he is he's reading widely and pulling from a lot of different sources and putting it all together in a way that is, uh, you know, it's able to be grasped by the people in his congregation. And, uh, and I think the other thing is just that he, he sorts through, uh, crises that in, in many times it's a crisis that, uh, shapes him. He, he goes to college during the civil rights, uh, movement and, riots on on university campuses over racism and so on um his uh, his own brother uh will die of aids uh as uh as a practicing homosexual that uh, ultimately finds christ tim uh, tim keller will minister to his brother will will lead him to christ will give him hope um and will will do his funeral and uh, interestingly uh, that uh, at one point Princeton gives him uh, a very special award uh, for his ministry in New York City. But then the Princeton Seminary protests, and they say, well, uh, he, sh he shouldn't be given this award because he doesn't believe in women's ordination and, he, and because of his stance on homosexuality. Um, and of course, he's his own brother died of AIDS. He, he, it's not like he wasn't loving toward people in that, uh, lifestyle, but, um, but they, so they actually, although they've already announced he's won the prize and it, I think it has a cash value to it as well. 
they rescind it. I think it might have been the first time they ever rescinded an award because the, because the seminary <laughs> protested. And yeah. they said uh, because of those two reasons. Uh, he, he was just way too conservative uh, and not progressive enough for that seminary. Way too conservative to be loving. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and so interestingly, of course, there's a huge protest, a lot of pushback to say, this is one of the most, uh, it's kind of, a, I think it was sort of a Presbyterian kind of award, and he is one of the most prominent Presbyterian pastors out there in New York City doing a great work. But, uh, and so there was a lot of pushback. And so interestingly, they ultimately, the, uh, part of what happened with this award, you got some, I think, a cash prize, but you also were invited to come deliver a lecture series. And so in the end, they say, well, we won't give you the prize, but if you want, you can come and give your lectures for us. Uh, and of course, I don't know what you would have done. Yeah. You're told, I'm not going to give you the money. I'm not going to give you the recognition, but you can come and lecture for us and kind of give us the, you know, the accolades of people coming to hear you lecture at our school. But he agrees to. And I think that wow. was uh, a lot of just the grace that he showed that uh, he just thought, well, it's an opportunity to kind of express kind of where I come from and why, uh, where my thinking comes from and how you can, he would say, you, you can differ with people and still be uh, gracious uh, and you can still be loving. You know, yeah. And he learned that trying to minister in New York City. And so he, he does that uh, there at Princeton uh, University as well. And so, you know, Keller is the kind of person that... Um, you 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 may not agree with everything that he says. Uh, he is, I would say, you know, pretty uh, on the spectrum. Uh, you would have to consider him conservative theologically and on many fronts, um, and yet he also is willing to uh, be ecumenical and connected with uh, a larger Christian community. And uh, and so the extremists are going to reject him for that. On both sides, but um, but I, I, I admire as much as anything. I just admire what he overcomes uh, yeah. to have such a powerful, innovative kind of ministry. Um, he's not necessarily a great leader. In fact, it says that his staff often criticized him because he wasn't a great administrator. Uh, he really relied heavily upon uh, executive pastors to take care of a lot of that kind of stuff. And so what I like about him is that he's got his flaws, he has his weaknesses, but he finds a way. In fact, one thing he said was, uh, you know, he said, so if you're a leader and you've got weak spots where you're not gifted, he said, obviously you can hire around that somewhat, you hire someone to be an administrator. But he said, you also have to just make up the difference with character, he said. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and that's what people said about him. They said, you know, we could critique his leadership, his administration all day long, but they said you couldn't critique his honesty, his humility. Uh, and so it, it allowed people to disagree with him and yet still work with him because they respected him as a man, as a Christian. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that's certainly a, a word for us as well to say you can't be everything. You can't be, you know, Keller certainly worked at uh, being better at what he, at what he uh, did, and uh, someone that was a voracious reader, which again, we, we constantly promote uh, here. But, uh, but then he also just, what, wherever he still fell short, he let character, and I think God's hand on his ministry uh, yeah. sort of make up any other shortfall. Well, and I think the results speak for themselves, and I think that's what's so fascinating about Timothy Keller is, um, you know, despite all the challenges, you know, he finds a way, 
he gets results, you know, and, and obviously God has blessed his ministry. So fascinating read. And as always, we'll leave links uh, to this book in the show notes. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If this is something you enjoyed, it really makes a difference if you leave a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Don't forget to subscribe and share with your friends. We always love hearing from our listeners. So email us at podcast at blackv.org.